Welcome to the Future Fix. Love it or hate it, Uber and app-based ride-hailing programs are making their way into municipalities around the world. In many cases, the company hasn't been welcomed with open arms. In fact, cities like Toronto wrestled with trying to legislate the relative newcomers while modernizing their existing rules for traditional taxi licenses. Some analysts worry Uber and companies like it are adding to congestion in certain cities while poaching riders away from public transit. Some cities have worked to curtail or cap the presence of ride-hailing on their streets, and some have even sought to ban it outright. On the flip side, Uber and other so-called disruptive startups like it don't always wait for cities and towns to roll out the red carpet. Typically, they would enter a market and begin serving increasingly loyal customers before the local government knew what to do with them. Local governments move slowly, cautiously, and Uber hasn't exactly been patient. It might surprise listeners, then, to know that Innisfil, Ontario, a town of under 37,000 people about 80 kilometers north of Toronto, actively sought to bring Uber in. To the people of Innisfil, Uber is their public transit service. It's a startling solution, and comes with some dire warnings from transportation experts. But does it work? You're listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. This is part one of The Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Each episode, we present community challenges and solutions and take you to places large and small from coast to coast to coast. To take us through the unique partnership between Innisfil and Uber, I sat down with the town's chief administrative officer, Jason Raynar, in Toronto. Uh, so, Jason, first of all, I was hoping for our listeners you could give us just a, a picture of Innisfil, uh, the town in, in Ontario, uh, about 40,000 people. Uh, what are we looking at here? What's, what's kind of the geography? Yeah, yeah. So it's the size of Mississauga geographically. So it's a pretty large municipality, mm-hmm. just uh, uh, on the 400 headed north towards Barrie. We've got about 35 kilometers of shoreline along Lake Simcoe, lots of agriculture, a little bit of suburban kind of downtown, but it's an amalgamated town, so there's lots of little villages as opposed to one kind of central core. Right. Also, like, a, a lot of space between mm-hmm. houses uh, and neighborhoods, that kind of thing. Absolutely. So that presented a kind of challenge for you guys as you looked towards some sort of public transit option. And I think uh, originally one of the options that was floated was a $1 million uh, 
bus route or a couple bus routes, maybe uh, yes. like three lines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, main, mainly north-south and east-west. But even that wouldn't have picked up the vast majority of the population without a serious hike to the bus route. Right. So yeah, we've been struggling with the transit. You know, it's hard to imagine a city or a town without transit at all, but that really was Innisfil for the longest time with the exception of some go bus service through Young Street. Right. So yeah, we, we were really struggling with what to do because traditional transit really requires a certain density level to make it work uh, financially. So ultimately we decided that we needed another approach and so we looked at a ride-sharing kind of approach and partnered with Uber. Right. And so Uber at the time, was it already operating in, in, in Isfell in some capacity? Yes, yes it was. Primarily out of Barrie actually. So people would take rides from Innisfil into Barrie or from Barrie out into Innisfil, but a handful of rides a month kind of thing. And so you kind of oversaw entering into this partnership between the city and uh, Uber itself. Can you tell me a bit about how that was negotiated, how you kind of came to this sort of unique arrangement? The town of Innisville put out a request for expression of interest to try to gauge the private sector or NGO kind of market for partnering with us to come up with some kind of a solution that would work for us. We knew we had all these cars going up and down our arterial roads, like our main roads, but we needed a way to connect them to the people that needed to get a Around. And so, thankfully, Uber submitted a proposal with a little nudging from us uh, for our request for expression of interest because they were really the only company at the time. Remember, this is 2015, and we've come a long way in ride-sharing. Uh, many cities were trying to get rid of them in 2015 and trying to block them and you know, didn't want companies like Uber or Lyft. Of course, now we're, we're embracing them, and we figured out ways to tax them and regulate them and you know, that kind of thing. Right. And so how does this partnership with Uber work uh, I believe the rides are subsidized to a certain extent by the city. Yeah, that's right. So basically, if you're in Innisfil and you open the Uber app, it knows to offer you Innisfil Transit as an option. So just like you'd see UberX or UberPool, you, when you're in Innisfil, you see Innisfil Transit. And uh, when you click on that option, if you're going to a destination that's one of our key destinations, like the town hall or the library, the food bank, then you get a flat fee rate to go there. And if it's anywhere else, you get a discount of $4 off your ride, your UberX price. Your normal UberX price. And then once a month on the back end, we get essentially a bill from Uber that says, here's what the subsidy is worth, and we write them a check. So it's pretty straightforward. I mean, we there's not a lot of complications. The agreement isn't 150 pages long. It's pretty straightforward. Right. And it's uh, had huge uptake. Uh, the Guardian Cities reported that in 2018 had close to uh, 86,000 trips, which is more than twice the population of Innisfil. That's right. So people are really responding to this and they're using yeah, the Yeah, absolutely. And we do surveys, you know, to get a sense of whether people are satisfied with the survey and, and the, or with the service, I should say. And uh, I think our last survey, that there was an overwhelming, like 70% of people were satisfied with the survey, with the service. And uh, for transit, that's pretty good standards. Right. Yeah, when you go from no system to some system, I think people have more of a tolerance for you know, it's still imperfect. You know, we would love it to be more widely available or uh, more uh, affordable, you know, even cheaper. But we're trying to find that balance between, yeah, no transit at all and some transit that gets people around. Right. And I believe uh, people get uh, sort of credit to a certain extent and then it it stops being subsidized by the city, the, the amount of rides. Yeah. So what we had to do this year was look at ways to start to curb the total cost, the total subsidy uh, that we were providing to Uber 
know, we started out with a budget around $100,000, and that pretty much took us through the first year of the program. And now, as you said, we're up to you know, uh, nearly 100,000 rides for 2020, probably. So it's, it's much, much higher, much more expensive, closer to a million dollars. And so council asked us to find ways to try to to contain those costs. And so what we did was we introduced a cap of 30 rides a month with the with an exception process. So if you are taking it to work or you're taking it to medical appointments or, you know, I don't want to call it a legitimate reason, but a, but a reason that isn't just socializing with your friends or, you know, uh, that, that uh, somehow justifies a sort of public transit subsidy, you can apply for an exemption. And we've had, I think, about 22 people apply for that exemption. We were looking at and testing kind of different ways of managing those costs. And I would say we're still trying to figure that out. Like, I don't think we have the answer yet, but uh, it's always difficult when you introduce a service and then you make changes because people get upset with how that works. Right. Mm-hmm. Was city and council sort of taken aback by the, uh, I guess we'll call it the success of the program, uh, how willing people were to adopt this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had done a number of feasibility studies to try to determine what the demand would be for some kind of a transit system. Because there's no doubt we're, a, we're an automobile-centric kind of town, right? I mean, to get around, you, you really need an automobile of some kind. Mm-hmm. And it's been like that for many, many years, obviously. So uh, we really really weren't sure what the demand would be, and this has blown our expectations out of the water. And it's to the point, actually, where even anecdotally people are saying through the winter that, you know, people were choosing to take this option and take transit instead of, like, shoveling their driveway and cleaning off their car because it was just so convenient and so affordable. Right. So, you know, we have to do some corrections there, I think, and kind of right-size the system. But, you know, the really interesting thing for me is that when you have a system like this where... You know, Uber knows exactly who is taking the rides, where they're going, when they're going. You know, they have all the data. So there's some pretty powerful analytics that can be done to say, if you were trying to target certain people, certain kinds of destinations, you know, certain affordability thresholds, you know, we can actually do that in a way that you could never do it with, you know, a hop-on, hop-off bus. Because you just don't know who your users really are. You have some sense, but... It's not the same. Yeah, I wanted to talk about data because uh, Uber and, and services like that are uh, largely protective of uh, what, what they'll say is their proprietary service. You know, they, they each have their own app. Uh, did the city of Venezuela reach an agreement with Uber about who gets that data? Is there some kind of data sharing agreement where you the city can then actually look at who's riding, who's going where, at what times, peak hours, that mm-hmm. kind of thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good question. And unfortunately, the answer is a little embarrassing because in 2015, we weren't really thinking a lot about who owns the data and certainly we weren't as advanced as I think some of the discussions are today about public-private partnerships and who, how's the data governed, you know, where is it stored, the privacy, you know, those kinds of things. So the agreement we have with Uber is, is fairly straightforward in that the relationship between the user and uh, the driver is governed by Uber. So they're really not our clients or our you know, we're, we're subsidizing the back end, but we don't actually have the data. We don't own the data. We don't touch the data. And, and what was built into the agreement was the concept of analyzing the data. So although we don't get the data, and maybe we should have in retrospect had that kind of conversation, and, we t- and I take that criticism, what we did build into it was the ability to have analytics done on the data. So, for example, if we're interested in how we can facilitate 
economic development through the transit system, and we want to have conversations about looking at the data from that lens, Uber will work with us uh, on doing that. So we're actually having some really interesting conversations with them about even some higher capacity transit. So, you know, would a bus make sense from certain areas to the GO train station in the morning, for example? It's more environmentally friendly, slightly less convenient, but if it's sort of on the same route that people are traveling anyways, you know, would it make sense? Kind of the Uber pool next phase sort of thing? Right. I think the amount that the city has ended up spending uh, on the subsidy for this program has been much more than than the one million they were debating for a bus service, even though, as you say, it provides more of like that kind of last mile service that a a bus route couldn't in the way that the city is uh, laid out. But is this in a way... uh, you know, a way to test the water, to test interest for public transportation, more like traditional public transportation in the future, and the time frame is whatever it may be. Yeah. It's one thing to do analysis and feasibility studies around, you know, there's certain demographics, and so therefore they may be interested in transit. It's all theoretical, right, and academic in one sense. But when you have real data, real people traveling around, you get a chance to really understand what people need and what they're motivated by in terms of tr- public transit. So, yeah, absolutely, we, we suspect that there'll be, you know, this kind of quote-unquote traditional transit that comes in, but where it's appropriate and, and where it makes the most sense, not only from a financial perspective, you know, a social perspective and an environmental perspective. But the idea of kind of empty buses driving around serving no one uh, or, you know, five people just doesn't make a lot of sense to us. As you described, Innisville is like a car-centric town. If this is really successful in, in showing people that they can leave the car at home, that there are other options, uh, then do you think this is kind of a, a mindset shift within the town? Yeah, I think, it, I think you're right. In part because we're facilitating people getting to appointments, getting to work, you know, part-time jobs and stuff that they they never really thought they could do before. And I think once people have that experience where they can get around without a car, I think it does start to beg the question about, you know, do you really need a car? Even when you can afford one, does it make sense to have one or not? So I'm sure there's a lot of people actually wondering how much of a commitment does the community have to continuing with this kind of transit, you know, long term? How do you get people comfortable with that, you know, and a commitment that it will be there, you know, when they need it at an affordable rate? But absolutely. And and we're looking more and more towards densifying our new development you know, at levels that are frankly seen in Toronto uh, in terms of density, right. because we really think it's one of the only ways that we can grow sustainably, you know, from an environmental perspective. The idea of kind of continuous sprawl subdivision is not what I think we want to be doing. So we don't want to become another Markham or Mississauga, you know, which are great places, but have a lot of that sprawl. So as we densify in really significant ways, I think this kind of conversation makes so much sense about not having car ownership and how to uh, look at it a different way. All right. Well, Jason, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. It's a solution, but not without its critics. Many transit advocates say private ride-hailing will never be able to provide the kind of service true public transportation does. And the question of what happens to all the valuable data Uber is bringing in about the people of Innisfil and their transit habits, and who gets to see it, remains open. Many look to the city of Barcelona, Spain, when it comes to best practices around data and partnerships between governments and private companies. Specifically, Whoever is awarded a public contract must provide their data to the city in a machine-readable format. It's part of an overall data sovereignty program called Data Commons Barcelona. 
To date, no such agreement exists between Uber and the town of Innisfil. Maybe there will be one day. Maybe the data derived from this experiment can feed a future, truly public transit plan. But until that happens, for Innisfil, Ontario, this is The Fix. Thank you for listening to the Future Fix Solutions for Communities Across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network, a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. Connect with others and continue the conversation on harnessing technology for the benefit of all at the Catalyzing Community Solutions Future Cities Canada Summit on November 7th and 8th, 2019 at Evergreen Brickworks in Toronto. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Tune in to part two of The Future Fix next month, where we discuss the role of government in so-called smart cities and vice versa as well as data sovereignty from a First Nations perspective.